and in a way I think that kind of saved me because people continued to share the good of Homer. People continued to share the beauty of birth. And I knew I still always loved it. And I knew that if I left birth, I, I didn't know what I would do. Like I didn't know what I would do next in the sense of it was a part of me. It was intrinsically something I believed in at that point. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Collective and I love that we're going to get little baby sounds throughout our little conversation. Yes. Yes. You love that. And it's quite that. early here, so nobody else should be, okay, you know, up and running. Success. Success. Yeah. Well, I sure am excited to chat with you. We've been sort of um, connected for a couple of years now. Yeah. Do you want to um, kind of say who you are? Do you want me to introduce you? Um, we can do both. So my name is Hannah. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Um, I started out as a doula that was working with a midwife that asked me to get a little bit more training under my belt and sent me to the middle of nowhere, Minnesota to freeze my butt off to be taught by Augustine, uh, back in 2019. Mm -hmm. I came back from that trip and immediately got pregnant. Uh Um, and then the world imploded and COVID hit about four months into my pregnancy. Right. And so that kind of sets the stage for the type of pregnancy I had in 2020. Um, I am still currently a practicing doula. I am currently in midwifery school at Go Midwife based out of Bozeman, Montana. Um, and we are actually moving to Montana in the spring to do in-person training with them. Cool. So that, that is, is a about... Lot. Yeah. So I have two kiddos. Um, one is two and one is less than four weeks old. Um, and I am married. And yeah, that's about, that about sums me up. Midwifery. And I love it. It's a, it's a good sum yeah. up. Well, 
our my co-host Layla is who usually interviews students, and so this is yes. a bit of a departure. So I want to interview. I want to introduce kind of uh, why I'm here and why I asked you to be on the conversation, yeah. and that is because I wanted to go beyond your student journey, although it mm -hmm. will inform a lot of what we talk about. Right, and I want to go right into. Um, the juxtaposition between being a student midwife and using midwives for your own births. Right. Because it's an overlap that happens for lots and lots of us. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh look at little tiny. I have to just take a break and just look at the little tiny head. So cute. No, well, so congratulations. Tiny compared to her brother. Oh yeah, right, exactly. And Beautiful. congratulations for baby number two. Thank you. Well, so um, I wanna preface this conversation by saying um, we, we might need to put a trigger warning out that this, um, we're gonna go into some deep conversations and we're gonna go into some, some touchy subjects. And um, for people that are sensitive to birth trauma, this might not be the right podcast for you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, you take my training, you're so excited. You're this eager, glowing, beautiful new student who like yes. could eat it with a spoon, like yes. gobbling it up, can't get enough, reading everything, watching everything, attending hospital births, hoping you can attend home births, yeah. imagining what your future is going to be like. You get pregnant everything comes to a stop. You can't even go into the hospital as a doula. So right. you're like home, home, home with COVID. Yep. And you hire midwives because my gosh, every piece of data that's been thrown out you is like midwives, right? Yep. And you plan a home birth um, and your birth doesn't really exactly go as planned. And so I'm wondering, do you feel strong enough to share the highlights of your birth story with us? Yeah, yeah. So what's wild is actually, I wasn't planning a home birth initially. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So That's I right. was in, originally I was in with a um, well-known OBGYN in the area um, who was fairly known for being natural minded, actually used to offer co-care with home birth midwives in our area. And if you know anything about Ohio, that's almost unheard, unheard of. of. Yep. Um, and so, yes. So I was originally with him. And in the very first appointment we had, my husband was actually able to come because it was right before COVID hit. And we had expressed an interest in having a home birth because I told him what I did for work. And he looked at my husband and said, she will die if she has a home birth. She is 200 times more likely to die. If it were my wife, I wouldn't let her have a home birth. And wow. he said that, and I kind of took a step back and was like, wait a minute, you used to do care with these midwives somehow a switch flipped in his practice and he no longer supported home birth care and was now spewing unfactual evidence. And wow. I just, we instantly, I walked out of that appointment and I said, I will never come back. So then we switched to hospital-based midwifery care um, at a well-known midwifery practice in the area. And when COVID hit, they had a a restructuring on how they did their appointments. And unfortunately in my third trimester, I went almost eight weeks without care. And so mm. I had to make the executive decision to say, I need, I need more because my anxiety was too much for me to feel like I wasn't getting enough care. 
Um, and so I had hired Gula at the time. That was a good friend of mine. And she was a midwifery student under a very well-known and very seasoned CPM in the area. Um, and she said, well, hey, listen, I'll reach out to my uh, teacher and see if she would be available to take you. And at this point, I was 38 weeks pregnant. Uh-huh. And so she was able to take us, but that kind of sets the stage that we only knew our midwives for four weeks before we gave birth, That's which right. I know is not, you know, unheard of, but it's not ideal, especially in yeah. a time where I was a first time mom and kind of didn't know what I was doing. I had only yeah. been to a couple of home births with other midwives and I had never been to any home birth prenatal care at that point. So yeah, I kind of was flying by the seat of my pants and not only educating myself as a doula, but as a first time mom. And I feel like that really set me up to be unprepared, to not, to not know what I didn't know. And so I thought I knew more than the average Joe, but I actually didn't know all that much about what to expect for birth. Well, can I, yeah, I hear that. And can I also say that there's a certain element of your story, which is like choosing a home birth because of what you didn't want, not because right. of what you did want. Right. You know, I feel like we were forced into the choice of home birth because we were facing, nobody could support me in the hospital and that scared right. the heck out of me. And so right. I already went into this choice with like backed into a corner mentality Um, And so that set up the whole room for anxiety because I didn't feel prepared. Um, So I didn't, I wasn't educated just due to simple lack of resources. And then I wasn't prepared because I, my husband wasn't like, we just didn't have any, any precedent of what to expect, expect for, I was like, well, I know home birth midwives are safe, so it's fine. Like, it'll be fine. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of my mentality was that. I know they're safe. I know she's a great midwife. Let's right. roll with it. Right. Yeah. And so you joined um, some pretty incredible statistics. I mean, this new evidence is just coming out that in, in 2021, the home birth rate went up 21%. And in 2020, yeah. it was about equal, um, about yeah. 25% or so. So, um, you know, the home birth rate has been jumping tremendously. Right. Um, in reaction to those really harsh uh, regulations right. that came down for hospital birthing families. And you also felt like you had a leg up, like, oh, I've seen this before and I've studied yeah. this and I'm for this. Yeah. yeah. But that um, you feel like maybe didn't prepare you. So, um, so walk us through the birth. Uh, what happened? What, what, um, yeah. what do you remember? Um, so started off, I went um, 16 days overdue. So 40 weeks came and I had hyperemesis through my whole pregnancy. So I was also miserable because I was throwing up through 40 and 41 and 42 weeks and was just ready to be done. Um, and so that was a mind game that started me off of like, just get this baby the heck out of me. Just angry yeah. that I was still pregnant because I was miserable and uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And so 42 weeks hit. And it's kind of funny because I was due at the end of August and a few people made jokes and were like, what if you went into labor on Labor Day? Well, that was 42 and one for me. And I was like, absolutely freaking not. You shut your mouth. I will not do that. Well, (laughs) the universe has a funny way of working itself out. And I woke up the morning of Labor Day with some bloody show and some light cramping. 
And, you know, I texted my doula who was the student midwife also and was like, okay, here's the deal, whatever. She's like, okay, go about your day. It may be tonight. It may be tomorrow, maybe later this week. So we, um, at this point I was toting a birth ball around with me everywhere we went. So we loaded a birth ball up in our car and we went to, you know, the Labor Day festivities. And I remember throwing up at somebody's house and the contractions were getting really intense. And I told my husband, we needed to go. Um, and we were going to go pick up my mom and we actually got caught in the thunderstorm and tornado sirens were going off. And so oh we were God. like, we were like, okay, so that was just like a key thing of like, we were like, Oh God, let's just get home and hope that people could just make it to the birth because of the weather. So we started to then be concerned that people couldn't make it. Um, so uh, we went home and I, we were laboring on our own and the midwives got there somewhere between 10 o'clock and midnight. One midwife showed up a little earlier. One came a little bit later. Um, and I was handling contractions fairly well in the beginning. Um, and then at some point the, a switch kind of flipped and I remember they just became unbearable and my poor midwife, um, I'm a Christian, she is a Christian, and I dropped so many F-bombs that night. <laughs> I feel terrible. I think oh, I, she fantastic. probably needed to, like, wash her ears out herself. And oh, just, my like, God. I love that. Yeah. Thank you um, for being real with us. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I just, it was, it was really, really intense. And I remember feeling like my pelvis was breaking. And I Whoa. just remember feeling like something was wrong. And I, I did it know what it was and I didn't know if it, I, I just couldn't handle pain like if I had a low pain threshold but I was like I've seen other moms do this both natural hospital births and home births and they don't feel like they're dying in the sense of I was contemplating using a kitchen knife to perform a season I was like somebody cut this baby out of me somebody kill me I I screamed please kill me Uh, 20 or 25 times. Um, Mm. Well, let's just pause here because this is just so, um, it's so powerful and it's so raw. And like, I just want to thank you so much for your willingness to be vulnerable and open. And I know that you're going to change people's hearts and minds by being so open because we rarely talk about the shadows and we rarely talk about Um, you know, when things aren't, you know, unicorns and butterflies. And I just really appreciate this from you. So um, I think when you called to consult with me pretty close after your birth, I shared with you that I also went through that level of investigation in my mind. Like, how can I make this stop? A kitchen knife sounds like a good idea. And that kind of rationale, that kind of thought process is a kind of trauma that a lot of people don't know or know what to do with, right? Right. Because the cultural perception of extreme pain is like, quick, call 911, go to the hospital, right? Right. But there are those of us who, um, by virtue of our our education, our training, our exposure, our morals, our beliefs, our background, our traumas, we don't have that thought in our head. Like, I don't know if this was true for you, but for me, there was no concept that someone could rescue this from me. Like, yeah, I felt I like started it to had to be me. Like I had yeah. to figure it out. Did you think that too? I, yes. And I also was like, I thought of the midwives needed to figure it out. Like 
Huh. I'm like, I'm like, cut me open. Do what you need to do. I don't care. Like do what you right. need to do to, I had such faith in my midwives that they didn't do anything wrong. Like they, they yeah. were trying to support the birth they thought I wanted, but I was just like, I had such faith that they could fix this for me, that they would somehow huh. make this better as my support person. That I was like, please just get rid of whatever is causing this to be right. so intense. There's got to be something you can do to make this better. Like I, this isn't normal. And I don't remember voicing that this wasn't normal, but looking back, I realized in my head, I recognized that this wasn't normal. You were thinking that. Yes. And, and like that's that part of the labor wrong. land place is it's hard to say the, those yes. deep thoughts. Right. And also there's also this kind of perception that you're like betraying natural birth and midwifery if you say yes. things like that, right? Yes. Since yeah. I was such a green student, I was determined to see this through because I didn't right. want to lose this credibility or this oh. Oh. reputation or whatever mm. that I thought I needed to earn to be a part of this community. You know, I came oh. into this community and some of these midwives have these powerful stories of their births or some of these doulas have these incredible stories of their accidental unassisted births and what, you know, BA badass women they were. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that too. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And I'm, I'm it's almost sure like a, can... a rite of passage or like some kind of right. ritual that's required yep. in order exactly. to join the club. That's it. Yep. It's out there. Yeah, as I an have unwritten to earn kind of a the rule. right to support yes. women. Like I had to earn my Ooh. right to be able to watch other women go through painful births and say, you can do this because I've done it. Oh, oh, that is, that is the tweetable right there. Yeah. I mean, I just, I hear this and I feel this so deeply in yeah. my core and I just want to pause here and just like give a shout out to all the home birth moms who transported and the home birth midwives yep. who had cesareans themselves and yep. just be like, you're who we're talking to right now, <laughs> because yep. like, that's some, that's some bullshit out there that whatever that is, they got passed down is some total bullshit. Yep. Like you don't have to have whatever kind of birth is the ideal in order to believe and be a part of this community. Like you don't right. have to do that, you know? And, um, I just, I appreciate you saying that unwritten unspoken kind of a belief that, that pervades the profession. And, uh, you know, there's so many of us who joined the profession as young childbearing people ourselves yeah. that this just gets passed on. And it's, it's a myth. It's, um, it's a mistruth. It's, um, it's painful. Yeah. 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 Cause it, even in that moment, even in that moment of being like, this is abnormal pain, this is not working. Help me. You yeah. still censored yourself to say, I can't really say that. Right. And I wanted the respect of this midwife so badly because oh. she was an older senior midwife that I didn't want to come across as incompetent because mm -hmm. to me that it my body's capable my body's ability to withstand my own birth somehow translated into the respect I deserved Oof. Oof. so how I processed Oof. my pain somehow for me was going to then translate into the way she looked at me from here on out oh Hannah that is just 
it's so beautiful and heart-wrenching and so many truths wrapped up in that experience you had and that you're so not alone. There are so, so many midwife students, doulas, childbirth educators, midwives who are going through exactly this level of pressurization. I mean, it's like expectations put on us so heavy. Yep. Thank you so much for naming that. Yeah, of course. So yeah. Um, tell us yeah. the next chapter. <laughs> so I did, I kind of lost track of time. Like you said, that labor land, you don't know what time is, who time it is. So, um, like I kind of labored all night and then I remember I, like I vomited through all of labor. So that was part of my misery too, was I couldn't keep food or fluids down at this point. Um, they put me in the water at one point and through a vomiting episode, my waters, my personal waters ruptured. So I'm in a pool, my waters break as I'm throwing up. They checked me um, and I, I asked to be checked. They checked me and at this point I was somewhere between a six and a seven. So we labor some more, do some things. I didn't want to get out of the water because that was the only thing that was giving me any type of relief. Um, and then listen to that little snarfle baby. I hear a little baby snarling. <laughs> I know. So she's cute. like a snorter. It's so funny. Um, and I apologize if she's loud. Um, so I they checked me again a few hours later, and I was a nine at this point. Or no, I was in yes, I was a nine at this point. And then somehow I got checked again because I I didn't progress past the nine. And she determined I had a cervical lips and I was starting to swell from the kind of bearing down I was doing from vomiting. And so she said, we need to get you out of the pool and you need to go lay down and try to deal with this cervical lip. So we did just that, you know, somehow they convinced me to get out of the pool against all of my very probably wild and um, instinctual thrashing and screaming that I was doing. and I just remember we were in an apartment and this was like key to this because it was the middle of the night. I was screaming profanities and Lord knows what our poor neighbors heard. And we lived in a very um, diverse community where there wasn't actually a lot of people speaking English. So I don't know what these poor people thought I was doing. Wow. And I just remember feeling bad that I was going to get the cops called. Like I, we were waiting for a knock on the door because of how kind of intense the situation was. So fast forward, I lay on my side through a few contractions. I, the swelling goes down, the lip goes away. I get up and have to go to the bathroom and on the toilet, I start to involuntarily push. And I kind of checked myself and I could feel his head descending. So they get me back in the pool. And I think I pushed for somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. Um, kind of started on all fours and I didn't love the way that felt. And I remember switching to sort of sitting upright, but like reclined in the pool, um, almost perfect to where the midwives could sort of see everything. And at this point it was my friend who was the doula and the student midwife kind of making calls. Cause she was a senior student at this point. She was in her phase three. Um, and head his head was born and she checked and felt for a cord and there was a double nuchal cord and she went to try to slip it off and it was too tight 
And so at that point, you know, I remember hearing the senior midwife say, it's okay. Um, you know, it, it'll be fine. But they said at this next push, you got to push with everything you got. We got to get this baby out. And I said, okay. And I didn't think anything of that. So I roared this baby out of me um, because I was ready to be done. And they helped somersault him out of me. There was no dystocia or anything like that. There was just the pause between his head and his body being born. That's standard. Um, and they somersaulted him out of me to get his cord off and they handed him to me immediately. And I remember he did have a very short cord, so he could only come kind of yay far on my chest. I couldn't kind of bring him all the way up. Um, and he was grunting. And I remember he was a big baby. His head was huge. He was a big baby. And he was kind of grunting, almost sounded like she does now, sort of snorty and but not, never cried out. And so we started doing some of the, you know, um, uh, NRP kind of protocol just to see if we could get him to come to a little bit and get him to start to breathe on his own. And it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And I was helping them, which for me is like a core memory to say I was performing NRP on my son alongside my midwives. Um, so I had actually just taken NRP this year, pregnant with him. And so we were trying to resuscitate. And at some point mm. the midwife said, Hannah, I got, I got to work on him. I have to detach him and bring him over here. I've got to work on him. When she did that, she had told my husband to call 911. Um, and he called 911 and my poor husband, he is not great in those type of situations. Like he kind of freezes. And he just wanted anybody else to be the one on the phone. So we call 911. The student midwife was dealing with me, trying to get my placenta delivered. Senior midwife had my baby somewhere else and was working on him and said, his heart rate is good. He's just not breathing and crying and his tone isn't great and he's not pinking up. Um, and so from there, uh, the EMS shows up, they get me out of the pool because they said, we don't want them to take you or think that you're in an emergent state. We just want them to take the baby. So they get me out of the pool and get me into the bed. So they could, cause it was in a kind of a different room. So they sort of wanted me to be tucked away in a different room. And, um, my husband just kind of got dressed and went on the EMS and that, that was it. I held my son for a minute or two while they were resuscitating him on, on me. And I helped resuscitate him. And I remember like milking his cord and talking to him and trying to get him to come. Um, and then he got detached and taken away. And I just remember them. I didn't actually think it was that bad. I was like, it'll be fine. Like he'll go to the hospital. They'll do a little work on him and then it'll be fine. Like I did not strike me that my son could die. It, that never, that thought never crossed my mind that he wasn't coming to, or that I wouldn't see my son again. I, I just remember thinking transfers happen. It's fine. We'll get him transferred. We'll get him a little oxygen or something. He just needs suctioned out. Like it's no big deal. Uh, and it'll be fine. And I, I just didn't think the worst at that point. So they got me into bed. EMS took him unbeknownst to me and you I think were kind of one of the ones to explain this to me EMS is not trained to handle NRP situations they are trained to resuscitate 
children and adults that are already breathing and just stop not a baby that's never taken their first breath or or lived outside of their mother's life um and so my son declined very rapidly on the way to the hospital and all but died in the transport there and i did yeah i did not realize that that was a, a thing like that to me was new information that EMS is not that helpful in that situation other than the speed at which they're legally allowed to drive. Oh, hello. Um, and so I just thought, uh, like, I didn't even think he was going to get admitted. I thought he'd be able to come home that day. Like, I, I don't know why I didn't think worse, I guess, but I was kind of like, it's fine. Like, my husband's with him and... and sorry um and I just was like it's fine it's no big deal well then they come and do their assessments on me um you know they still obviously had to make sure I was safe and healthy and whatever and come to find out I had had a fourth degree tear and so did your midwife diagnose that or were they just concerned that it was really bad and took you in and the doctor told you that the yes so the midwife realized it was out of her scope of practice to repair Uh so she said it was at least a third or fourth and she didn't want to push probing too much to really see what Uh it was but just said I can't she wasn't going to repair it so yeah Mm -hmm. she said you Mm -hmm. have to go in and get this repaired and I remember at that moment having a breakdown because I knew that I was going to be away from my son even longer because I was already mentally preparing to go to the hospital for him and I remember being so distraught that I and one of my biggest fears in birth was to get stitches to get a repair that was what I was I was I just remember I always said to the midwife if I could just not tear I think I'll be okay if I could just not tear because a needle down in my lady bits does not sound fun to me I don't I don't care what happens and so the thought of having to have everything down there sewn just petrified me and I remember at that point getting extremely emotional that I was a gonna have to be taken to the hospital and b that I was probably already gearing up for the pain that was gonna entail coming forward like that that was gonna look like um so while to get to the hospital because I was so depleted at this point um yes I remember being on taking a shower that I would not go anywhere smelling and feeling like I did oh poor Hannah I was so naive because it took me three attempts to take a shower without passing out um and because of fatigue or because of blood loss or because of dehydration can you figure out why all of the above I think it was somewhere between I didn't have very much blood loss so we assume it was somewhere from fatigue and I think it was from lack of nutrients and dehydration at that point, because it had been well over 24 hours since anything actually stayed in my system. Right. And then just went through this labor. Um, Yeah. And so I, and then the shower was hot and I remember like, I did, I did okay. And for the first couple of minutes, then I was like, guys, I kind of can't breathe. (laughs) They were like, okay, let's get you out. I was like, Okay. And I also remember through all of this, I was getting calls, updates from my husband. 
and uh-huh. he was like, hey, we're here. The whole team is waiting for us. And that was where it kind of hit me that I was like, what the hell? What do you mean the whole team's waiting? What do you mean? Like, they're waiting for you. I don't, I don't get it. Like, it, he doesn't, and they like took him into a trauma bay. So we were coming in as this major traumatic, we have to save this baby's life. And I, I didn't, I just was not anticipating that. And then they said, they're going to do this thing where they're going to cool him. And I had no idea what that meant. And they said, well, they're going to cool him. So we're going to be here for at least three days. And I was like, okay. So we packed a bag for at least three days. I finally was able to get a protein shake in my system, get showered. And my mom drove me to an, at the adult hospital um, to get my repair done. And so my repair was brutal. Um, again, you don't know what you don't know. And unbeknownst to me, an OBGYN resident did my repair when a Eurogyne surgeon probably would have been a better qualified individual to do my repair. Um, and that resident, God love his soul, he was very kind because I was very, very scared at this point. They also wanted to semi-sedate me to do this repair and put me under kind of a twilight zone to be able to handle the amount of stitches that I needed, but I would have had to stay in the hospital overnight. And so I downright refused and said, nope, you can do it with lidocaine because I'm leaving after this. And so I made a decision in that moment to take what I had to take um, to deal with this because I wanted to see my baby. And so I said, we're going, we're going to the NICU after this. I'm not staying here to what I said, I don't care what you have to do. I'm leaving. Um, and so I said some more profanities through that repair. Um, and did my best to handle what I could. Um, and we, then my mom, after that was done. So, and the part of the issue was my repair didn't get done until probably eight hours after the birth or longer, which is not ideal, as you well know. I don't have to tell you that, I know. Um, and so there were so many factors that went into that. You know, when you're in a home birth and you have to have a small repair, first of all, it's less stitches you have to have, for one. And two, you're in oxytocin world. You've got your baby on your chest and everything is great and wonderful and lovely. And um, you are in in bed and your partner's there with you. And, you know, all these things are beautiful and wonderful. And I was essentially alone in a hospital, which is where I didn't want to be eight hours after birth, you know, infection had started to set in just naturally. I I wasn't showing signs of infection, but like it, they were like, we need to get this taken care of. We're going to give you some antibiotics because by natural selection, infection started to. Well, and your bowel is open. So the bacteria right. that lives in your bowel is everywhere. Right. And no so that's what they said. Yeah. They were like, no, you know, they said I wasn't like, I didn't have a fever or anything where I was like showing signs of like systemic. Oh, fever infection. is usually actually the last in- sign of infection. Right. Like, you right. know, yeah. 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 So they were like, we're not saying you have like this infection, but infection is starting to set in naturally. Um, and so they gave me a course of antibiotics. They just used local numbing and they sent me on my way because I was like, I'm leaving. Peace out. Goodbye. Um, so then I rode in a car again. 
um, which I don't recommend doing if you can help eight hours after birth. Um, and went to the other side of town where the children's hospital was and um, was wheeled upstairs to the NICU to where my baby was. And they diagnosed my son with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Sorry, that's a tongue twister. Um, so HIE for short. And there is this new protocol. Well, back then it was new in the U.S. Um, of something called cooling. So for those that don't know, it's where they put your baby on a cooling mat that's filled with cooling, moving, circulating water. Um, and they bring his body temperature down to somewhere between 91 and 93 degrees. So not cold enough to set in hypothermia, but cold enough to still him. And they had him on a minor sedative and enough to give his brain a break um, and try to heal what he could himself um, and to not force his brain to do any extra work. Um, so for three days, we couldn't touch him. We couldn't hold him. He couldn't eat. We couldn't feed. Um, and yeah, that walking into that again, I just was like, this is fine. It's fine. It's no big deal, whatever. And I just didn't realize the severity of what we were dealing with that. Yeah. Then they started kind of coming at me with all the crazy diagnosis of he may never walk. He may never talk. He may never eat. Um, there were some blood levels that they did, I guess, when they first came in that determined that he was not well, um, like in the severity of how much brain damage he was experiencing. Mm -hmm. They told us to expect seizures. They told us to um, expect brain swelling, that he could need surgery if he swelled too much and needed to release some of the pressure. Um, kind of all of these things that you never want to hear about your, you know, eight hour old baby, they told us. And then that was where I was sort of also like, my life may never be the same after this. Not only did I just become a mom, I may have yeah. became a mom to a very medically dependent child. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So luckily fast forward through all of that, um, he had no complications. We walked out of the NICU two wow. weeks later and he is a, <clears throat> excuse me, beautiful, healthy, very active, very thriving two-year-old with not a single complication. Um, wow. Is getting ready to start a preschool co-op uh, this winter um, and is great. Had, had wow. absolutely not one seizure, not one complication that they determined. Um, we were able to hold him on day three. He started taking breast milk on day five breastfed for 18 months and is now a very proud big brother um and I'm yeah, so and happy so we for able, you I'm so yeah, relieved yeah, yeah. for you yeah best possible outcome given what happened yes yeah um and yeah I don't want to take away or minimize from any of that um but I do want to like take us towards um the processing that you had to do and how you yeah. uh, interacted with your midwife again. Will you share that with us? Yeah. So once or twice while in the NICU, I came home. Um, I never not spent the night at the NICU. Luckily our NICU was great and, um, always wants parents to be involved. And so they always have a place, excuse me, for at least one parent to sleep. So for that, I was thankful. Um, but we did have to come home to shower and whatnot. And so that was how we did my postpartum check-ins was that they wanted me to, they would arrange a time for me to come home to do what we needed to do. And they wanted to come check on me. Um, 
And so I didn't know what to think at first. So she reassured me, and I still believe this, that they did everything that they could. They were checking him. And I remember them listening to Heart Toes. I remember them doing NSTs on him when I was 41 and 42 weeks. So from the, all the little knowledge that I had, fine. and I'm not saying they didn't do anything right, because from my perspective, they did everything competently. They did everything safely. And no matter what, I always said, this midwife kept my son alive. And my son could have declined much faster if she wasn't competent in her NRP training, if she wasn't, you know, good at what she did. So she kept my son alive. And I really think kept him from getting any more damage that he could have had. And so for that, mm-hmm. I have always been thankful. And it took me a long time to come to that place because yeah, I went through almost like, what is it? The seven stages of grief, right? Like I was angry. Yeah. At one point. Um, I wanted to blame her for what happened. I was heartbroken because I didn't understand why me, why did this have to happen to me and my birth? And why did we have to go through this with my son? Like, you know, everybody else gets normal births. What, why, why me when I believe in this work so much and, you know, this has to happen to me and it broke my spirit around this work. I actually had texted some close friends and said, I'm done. I'm not doing birth work anymore. I quit I'm shutting down my business. Don't refer to me anymore. Leave me alone. Like I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, I kind of put on a brave face with the midwife in the beginning yeah. because I didn't want to have any confrontation. I didn't. And I, we, we were still in the NICU at this point. So I was like, I just want to yeah. deal, make sure I'm safe and healthy and whatever and deal with this and go back to my baby. And so I kind of put on this, like, let's just, you know, be okay with it. Let's just do what we need to do to move on um, right now. And really my friend who was a student midwife was so pivotal in all of this because she was just so kind. They both were so kind. They gifted me with a placental encapsulation because they wanted to try to help me avoid postpartum depression with everything I was dealing with. Um, They, you know, were always offering to bring meals and drop breast milk bags off to the hospital. And so truly they both supported us as much as they they could, the senior midwife and the student midwife, honestly. but I just didn't know what to think. And I had so many voices telling me your midwife is at fault. And deep down, I just didn't believe that. I just didn't. Can you tell me why? Cause I'm sure the hospital had opinions about what was going oh, on. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Because I just knew that this could have happened in the hospital. This could have happened sure. if I was in the hospital. And I just, I yeah. heard them listening to him and he was fine. And so yeah. I was like, what else was she supposed to, she did everything according to, you know, safe practices. And so I just, and it was a level of camaraderie of, I was like, she's my people. These are my, these are my, my coworkers essentially. Right. Like I, I believe in her and I trust her. And I, and it was also a level of if I admitted that she did something wrong, which to this day, I still don't think that she did. 
But if I were to say, yes, she did X, Y, Z wrong, it would have been my fault because I made the choice to have a homework. Mm. So Mm. I also didn't want to swallow my pride and say, yeah, maybe you guys are right. Uh, Maybe I should look into this. Uh, Maybe she did screw up because then that would have meant that I, I wrongly put my faith in somebody incompetent. That's so heavy. And that is so, um, that's so honest. Like I just, I'm, I, I'm still so grateful to you, Hannah, for your level of honesty. And when we were consulting, you know, when you were early in this recovery and healing journey, like I was so impressed with you then. I'm still so impressed with your ability to access that, that real truth, that nugget, that truth of the matter. Um, and to just so honestly and vulnerably share all these really intense and deep levels of processing. If you acknowledge that she could be at fault, you would have to acknowledge your own fault in the issue. And that is so heavy. It's so heavy. Ultimately, it was my decision to have a home birth. You know, everybody yeah, was apprehensive, I hear that. right? And so for me, I yeah. was like, I carried this decision. I carried this yeah responsibility and yeah and, and then again it was like a level of camaraderie because I was like it could be me I would want somebody to believe in me that Oof. I know that I did everything I could I would yes. want somebody to trust me and I had to I had to give her that it for my own self because then again it would make me question this profession and I wasn't such a ready level to do that of- that's such a level of profound honesty and, and even seeing yourself years into the future when you finish this training, like how would you want your student or your client who was in the midst of a trauma, how would you want them to talk about you? That's so powerful. It's yeah. So I, yeah, that, that was just where I was at. And so I just, I also couldn't deal with it in that moment. I, I could yeah, not, yeah. I was like, yeah, no, like just recovering. Not, yeah. Surviving. Yes, absolutely. Yes. hundred yeah. percent. Um, yeah. but yeah, I, I knew right off the bat that I still believed in this 100% that my son was just a perfect storm. Um, yeah. that he was a big baby. We went overdue. I was a first time mom. I had a lot of stress and anxiety in my person, in my body that I think contributed to my inability to relax and control my sort of adrenaline during my birth um and that he had this double nuchal cord that just factored into his birth um he also was posterior and asynclitic so he was born with a pretty big hematoma on the side of his head um and so we obviously knew that his dissension was not an ideal, uh, and, you know, sort of butter birth situation. It was more, he got knocked around quite a bit coming out. And so yeah, he just yeah. was the kind of perfect set of circumstances that were one in a million essentially. And so I, and I don't think it's that rare, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I get it. It's, it can happen anywhere. And, and that, um, uh, fairly rapid distension or, you know, expulsion that you had as a prime at 45 minutes or whatever is, is pretty rapid actually. Um, with an asynclitic, you know, post, he rotated at the end, right. But he was posterior through all of your labor. Um, that's actually, um, 
you know, fairly common, but when you have the double nuchal cord, um, we get this serious lack of, of venous return. And, um, I think, I think that's absolutely enough, even in the last say five to seven minutes when they weren't listening, cause he's crowning, that's enough to cause this level of chaos. Every yep. midwife who attends birth has to be prepared to do major resuscitation. And I'm so glad that you had that midwife who was able yep. to do that. As you said, kept your son alive. I'm so glad that you had that. Um, when you got angry, I think is partly when we talked <laughs> Um, I wanted an explanation. Yeah. 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 And that was why I reached out to you because I wanted to know why. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you know why now. I know why enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I honestly don't even, I don't think at this point in my life, I would want to know, could I go back and watch a film of my, of my birth and have somebody say, yep, that's where something happened this right this point right here that's where shit hit the fan that's where your midwife screwed up I don't think I would even want to know that I I don't think I need to know that I just know that we had this perfect storm situation and that uh it it happens yeah and it does and like you said even in the hospital yeah yeah yes exactly and that was where Mm -hmm. I kept saying this could happen to anybody in the hospital just because I was degree tears happen all the time in the hospital. Yeah. Baby's going to NICU and need cooling all the time. Yep. Double nuchal cords all the time. Yeah. So and yeah, it could happen. There's nothing, there's nothing about this scenario that is home birth specific. Right. Except for that you happen to be at home. (laughs) And that was part of the camaraderie in my brain where I was like, yeah, I'm not going to let home birth take the fall for this. I won't. Oh. I said, I will not let home birth take the fall for this. Cause like you said, it could have happened to anybody. Yeah. And I said, I won't let what I believe in so wholeheartedly take the fall for this. I won't. Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point I did change my mind and I did make home birth the, the culprit in this situation because I said, I, I quit, I quit birth work. I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. And I said, had I not had a home birth, maybe my son would be alive or it wouldn't have had this happen or yeah. whatever the, you know, whatever the case yeah. was. Yeah. I, had I not had a home birth, this wouldn't have happened. You know, then I did get to that place in my brain. And cause I also feel like a lot of people in my life wanted me to get to that place because they blamed mm-hmm. home birth. Yeah. Yeah. And so everyone wants someone to blame when things don't go as planned. Everyone wants someone to blame. And, um, usually the smaller guy is either easier to beat up. Right. And so home birth is the smaller guy and gets knocked around a lot across the country in the media. And, you know, we just had that, that the Hollywood movie pieces of her, right. Which was knocking home birth with, you know, that story was was missing so many reality points, you know, but like it's everywhere. And I, I really just want to take a moment and reflect on how hard that must've been for you to have so many forces from so many directions telling you this is the reason. Yeah. 
And yet yeah. you stayed, stayed true to your heart. It's, it was almost like a mother's intuition type of thing, which mm. I know all moms know that I was just like, nope, no, no, that no, it, it, I just will not accept that. I just will not, yeah. you know, I just couldn't. And, and again, yeah. there were so many reasons why it wasn't just that I loved Homer so much that I just thought it was amazing and perfect and flawless. You didn't have blinders on. No, you were looking at it closely. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I, but I, through it all, I still believed in home birth. I still believed in the competency of midwives. I mean, hell, I had a second home birth two years later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it took some time to get there, but. Well, so, so tell us what was the turning point from being in that deep grief place and that anger place and that just wonder, like, why? Like, how did you, we talked, you talked to friends, you have that very close friend who was a student. What other resources did you pull upon to get to this place where you're like, I still believe in this. I just had this perfect storm. Yeah. Um, I, I put myself in counseling um, because I was really struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety um, and PTSD at that point. And so that was a big I did a lot of self work right Mm -hmm. after my son was born and I was kind of forced to because we were still in peak COVID time so I had a lot of alone time to Mm -hmm. basically just be on my phone and be in my thoughts that was all I did all day I breastfed and was it was I was looking at myself all in the mirror basically all day long yeah yeah and most of my social media was birth workers was people sharing information and stuff um And in a way, I think that kind of saved me because people continued to share the good of home birth. People continued to share the beauty of birth. And I knew I still always loved it. And I knew that if I left birth, I I didn't know what I would do. Like, I didn't know what I would do next in the sense of, it was a part of me. It was intrinsically something I believed in at that point. And so it was probably a good thing that my social media was flooded at with birth at some point. I tell at one point I did have to get off social media because I was pissed off that other people were having beautiful births and I didn't get it. Um, But then again, those are those stages of grief that when I came back to social media, it was like, I was reminded that there was still beauty in birth. Yeah. That's beautiful. So that was helpful to have that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, I didn't start returning to births until I went to the second um, advanced training of yours um, in August. Yeah. Um, and like those a year later. Women, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my son mm-hmm. was a, almost a year old. Um, and And actually, the way it worked out was she's now my very best friend in the world. Um, she was my, the first birth that I returned back to work doing. Mm-hmm. She was a home birth. Um, and not to share her birth story, but she had a resuscitation that needed done at her birth. Um, and that was very traumatizing in a way for me, but also healing because her resuscitation did not end in a transfer. And 
her baby stayed home with her and I was on the other side of the resuscitation. I was helping the wow. midwives do How it. powerful. Wow. And it was almost a year exactly to my son's birth. Wow. Wow. And I bawled my eyes out after that birth. The sweet midwife who actually ended up being my midwife for um, this baby um, hugged me and just happened to know my birth story from a peer review and kind of put two wow. and two together wow. about what went on. Um, and just sat with me in that moment. Just let me be mm-hmm. in that moment because I remember stepping out of the bedroom and walking into the living room where nobody else was, and I was crying so hard that I was almost vomiting because I just was like, "Why, Lord Jesus, would you do this to me? Why would we have such an intense?" Because <laughs> we actually had to call EMS and sent them away because baby recovered quickly. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, wow. And so I saw That's a so heavy. Unquote, successful resuscitation, right? Where we didn't have to transfer. Um, right. And that was really restorative for me. And yeah. my friend's birth was really restorative for me because she was a breach VBAC at home with wow. a resuscitation. And so wow. all the things that kind of could have quote unquote gone wrong for her and all the things she was up against she had a successful healthy baby to who we call my niece. Um, and so unbeknownst to her, her birth was very healing for me because I was able to see a a, a happy ending, a happy outcome. Right. You came out of the shadows and you saw the light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, that's so beautiful. Choosing this, like I said, choosing this midwife for my next birth. Uh Uh-huh. Almost. And you had a pretty straightforward, home birth a lot of uh, a lot of the mainstream media or you know ob joyan recommendation is that if you have a a fourth degree tear you sometimes are counseled to choose a cesarean how did you get through that yeah um three months postpartum for me i ended up having to go back in um to the hospital and needed a revision because i had a fistula on my um incision so i needed a fistulotomy and luckily, a um, urogyne surgeon at this point did it. Um, and she, because I was still having complications and my midwives said, hey, we think you need to get some, this, they said, this is not right. This is not normal. Uh, you know, you need to get this checked out. And so I'm glad they did that when they did it. Um, so I had my revision done and the urogyne surgeon said, now I want you to go to public floor therapy. I said, okay, that's fine. Cool. Um, you know, public floor therapy has really gained a lot of traction in the last few years yep. as being recognized as a really essential um, therapy. And so I was like, cool, I'm going yeah. to public mm-hmm. floor therapy. Great. Um, and so I went to public floor therapy and had been in pelvic floor therapy um, basically six months postpartum all the way through the birth of my daughter. So 18 months wow. I did pelvic floor therapy. Um, wow. And actually my pelvic floor therapist was, supportive of my attempt to try vaginal birth again, but also recognized my fears and sat with me in those. Um, because, you know, I think she shared with me the statistic is overall, if you have a vaginal birth, you have like a 1% chance of having a fourth degree tear or high grade tear. If you have a, you go for a vaginal birth a second time, the statistic I think she said is somewhere there's been a couple of different studies and it's, it falls somewhere between five and 8% ish that you would have right. a subsequent tear. Um, 
And so she kept reminding me, she kept saying like, you, yes, you could have a t- another tear. Yes, you could. But this, the probability is still low enough that it's okay, it's okay for you to want to try a vaginal birth again. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, I did pelvic floor therapy, which sucked for Shut. 18 months. Super not comfortable. Right? <laughs> yeah. Especially when you have a scar and she's, you know, palpating and stretching and manipulating oh, the fascia yeah. and uh, the scar and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm thankful for it because I didn't tear at all with my second birth. Can you just quickly, I know we're not here to hear, to do the story of her birth, but can you quickly tell me about your pain response with this labor? Did you, yeah. did, did you equate it as the same? Um, it was pretty interesting actually. So I did not really realize how kind of how quick my son's birth was in the grand scheme of things. So for being a posterior asynclitic baby, my active labor was only about six hours. Uh-huh. Um, and he was quick. also 10 pounds. So, yeah. you know, a fairly big baby for a first time mom. Um, and so I say that to say that when I recognize that maybe I kind of thought this baby might come fairly quick. <laughs> um, and so I started laboring and I actually labored for almost an hour, over an hour, hour and a half without calling the midwife because I didn't think I was in labor. Um, and by the time I called the midwife, I was there within an hour and so that was two hours of labor and I had the baby an hour later basically wow and so I feel like overall we're basically being in transition style labor for those la- for three hours I handled the pain pretty well because for two of it I labored alone you know wow. just my husband um and she and was I, not malpositioned yeah. Yeah. So there's a big difference in pain with malpositioned babies and normally positioned yeah. babies. I'm so glad to hear that it went well for you. I'm, I'm just so grateful to you. Um, for many reasons, I, I learn I learned so much from you and I, I just, um, likewise, <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty awesome. And, and, um, your story, it's like a window into a world that I think midwives need more access to. Because as home birth becomes more popular, and we've had this huge expansion from COVID, um, the first big expansion was with Ricky Lake's movie, you know, in 2007. Um, in the following couple of years from that coming out, my practice personally doubled. And I heard lots of people talk about how their practice doubled yeah. in 2007. Um, there was something else came out in 2014, and there was kind of like another expansion. But COVID was like sort of like extreme across the nation. Um, And as home birth grows and more people choose home birth that don't exactly know what they're getting themselves into. In other words, they're choosing not that, not that they are choosing home birth. They don't want a hospital birth, but they don't necessarily want a home birth or a birth center birth. As more people end up in that category, we have a huge potential for more um, very disgruntled, unhappy clients who are very unhappy with their midwives. And I feel like you and your honesty gave us a window into what the, what that's like for the birthing person. And you obviously had this real gumption and this real um, commitment to like seeing yourself through this, still imagining yourself as the practicing midwife 
but so many clients don't have that perception. Right. And I wonder, as we wrap up this conversation, I wonder if you could share um, from your perspective now, having had one straightforward and normal birth, one very, very complicated home birth, two different midwives in the community, lots of workshops, classes, you're, you're moving yourself along the training. What do you want midwives to say or do when birth doesn't go the way that we planned it? Yeah. Um, actually, I remember, it's funny. I remember putting a post out not long after my son was born on my business page saying, I, they just, we don't prepare clients well enough for transfers. We don't prepare clients well enough for transfers of their baby, for transfers of themselves. And this was not a, my single midwife issue, right? This was not like, you did not do this well enough. This was, this is a systemic across the board type of situation where I was like, we just don't do this. We, so well how could we you don't imagine? Do well enough. We don't do trauma well, it's true. But how could you imagine? Like, do you have any tips or tricks or sentences or phrases or actions? What could you imagine we could do to prepare women for this possibility now that you've lived through it? Yeah. Um, so I think, like you said, having the expansion of home birth, we're going to have more transfers by and large, right? Because, yep. the, you know, number of births go up, number of transfers go up just by nature. Statistically. Nature. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so I think one thing is um, we need to prepare our moms to advocate for themselves in this sense of, which I think is what we all do. That's an easy thing to say because that's half our work is advocation. Whether you started this work as a doula or not, like we need to have the conversation of saying, listen, you're going to get transferred and it's going to be okay you're going to get some backlash for this because that to me was so difficult to deal with that I came into this NICU and I remember some of the first conversations doctors having with me was, well, you had a home birth. So had you not done that, this wouldn't have happened. And so I was already being bombarded for the blame of my choices. And because I couldn't have my midwife there or I couldn't have my doula friend there, I was just having to stand up for myself. And I, so I'm this fresh postpartum mom with engorged boobs and trauma on the brain. And I, I'm sobbing. And these people are like, you're an idiot. And that's, that's what I was being made to feel. And so I just want to remind our moms, like, first of all, you're not an idiot. Number one, yeah. like, and that's so simple, but like, you made the best decision you knew how to make yeah. with statistics on your side saying this was a safe choice. And just because you got transferred does not negate those statistics and does not negate the education you had to make this decision, right? The, the informed decision you made. Just because you became one of the crappy statistics doesn't mean you, you know, you made a wrong choice because I felt like yeah. that. I was like, I should have never had a home birth. That's oh. not, that's not true. You know, that's not true. Mm -hmm. And I don't want anybody to feel like they made a wrong choice. I want them yeah. to be able to recognize that you made an informed choice. And I think that's part of where we need to talk about that. Statistically, what are the transfer rates, right? Like 
-hmm. what are transfer rates across home birth in general? And what are, what are these individual midwives transfer rates? Well, that's such a good point. And I would say this is another place. I think we need to do a lot of healing and truth telling in midwifery because transport rates has become a badge of honor and midwives are purposefully or not purposefully reducing those rates to be accepted. Like I gave a presentation the other day online. I can't remember exactly the details, but I was like, a normal transport rate is between, is right around 15 to 20%. That's normal for midwifery practices. When we're talking about prenatal labor delivery, postpartum, neonatal, the total is about 20% of the people that come to you will not end up getting all of the care from you. Right. Um, And it would be very normal for it to be 15% don't birth with you. Like that would be very, very normal. Um, And this, this midwife kind of spoke up and was like, oh no, I've never had higher than a 5% transfer rate. And last year it was 1%. And like, I hear what they're trying to say there, Yeah. but it creates this culture of being, of, of bullying and of, of this badge of honor that stops midwives from telling the truth because they might be judged. And then in your case, they stops the people who are accessing their services from hearing the truth. Yeah. And therefore believing this could happen to me, you know, there's, there's a whole widespread narrative that needs to change both in the midwifery home birth side of things and in the obstetrical side of things, which, Oh, the obstetric, oh God, that could be a whole podcast on its own. I just mean, like, I hope our moms also, there's such a, um, and I was just telling somebody this the other day, there is such a responsibility that we take on as moms when we have home births, right? Because we're not just being told by our midwives what we need to do, that we are we are choosing to say, I want a different birth. And so I am taking some of the responsibility of, which is, this is a hard place to be, right? Because we take responsibility for our health and saying, I want a natural at-home birth. Um, and so I am going to do things healthy and whatever and, and do it a certain way, right? I'm going to take these herbs and these supplements and I'm going to be self-educated. But with that comes that stigma that if you do land on the flip side, and you do lean in a transfer because you took some of that responsibility. You then take some of the responsibility for that trauma. Yeah. But Oof. I just, I we have to recognize that, that, and that's where we need to have the conversation of your informed decision right now is that statistically your transfer possibility is this. And also, if you do get transferred, you are probably not going to be welcomed with open arms by your doctors. And be prepared to be made to feel like crap for your decision, Mm -hmm. especially in in this state, in the culture that I'm in. Not every state is like that, thank God. And even no, but many are my area. Even legal states are pretty hostile against the parents. They have this blame mentality. I read this quote. It was a great quote the other day, and it was like, "A transport from a home birth that requires hospital services is functioning exactly how it is designed. Like that's success. (laughs) Like if you if your midwife discovered that you need to be in the hospital and you go there, like congratulations, that's exactly you made a safe choice. Yeah, that's not a failed home birth. That's actually a successful midwifery care model. You know, is that you transfer when you need it. 
but we have this really warped narrative and um, the obstetrical world and the nurses and the hostility like that, uh, that could like, we can't fix that. We can't fix that. But what you're saying is that we could be a little more truthful with moms and be like, yeah. this is probably what it's going to look like if you end up there. If you have the yeah. time to have that conversation, right? Um, so for one, the first conversation we need to be having is statistically, truthfully, statistically, this could be your possibility of having a transfer, right? Yeah. Like you said, whether that's prenatally in the, in labor, postpartum, so th this could just be your level of what could happen. If you have the time to have this conversation with your client, try to debrief them, especially in COVID world where not as many people can go into the hospital with them. Yeah that they're going to meet some opposition and that no yeah. matter what anybody in that space says to them, they are a competent and capable mother or parent or whoever you're speaking to at this point. Um, and that they did not make a wrong decision and nothing that they, they are experiencing is their fault. There is no mm. fault in that situation. And I think as Thank midwives, we need Thank to you. change our mentality of, like you said, that transfers equal failures right because oh, we're yeah. feeding into the obstetrical mentality that then home birth is inherently safe right and That's that it's right. not statistically okay like we are we are feeding into the the blame mentality that we did something wrong right and like you said if we safely transfer a mom and keep her and her baby alive and limit as much as we can the amount of trauma they experience right? Like if we we've, can have a conversation, we've done our job. Well, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's like, what it, that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. So we have to oh. stop feeding into the, well, a transfer is, is damned. A, tra a transfer is not what we want because ultimately I would much rather have a safe transfer and a less hectic transfer than I would to tell a mom that I I'm sorry, I can't, I can't resuscitate your baby. I need more help if we could have recognized something sooner and said, Hey, we should probably transfer now before shit hits the fan. Right. Like that is, the and goal, that can't that always happen. Right. Uh, well, it can't always happen, but it can certainly happen a lot more than it is happening. And this right. is no statement about your birth or your scenario, but across the country, when I teach right. and I travel and I talk to midwives and I take case reviews and I take chart, you know, consulting reviews, um, there is, there are a lot of elements of community-based midwifery care that could elevate. And also I think the country at large needs to borrow from the areas that have had the most open practice models and the most legality, because yeah. it's like, we're rising at very uneven levels. And if we could just kind of bring all of the knowledge base yeah. up to what's happening in the legal places, we would have a huge huge shift, a huge benefit. Well, it's just been, um, it's been so inspiring to talk to you. I, um, I want to hear, uh, like as we close, I just want to hear one last little bit about, um, yeah. where you're going in midwifery. And you said you're going to do hands-on training in Montana. Yes. Yes. Um, so my school offers a three months intensive twice a year. Um, and so cool. we are packing up and headed to Montana in the spring, um, to as a family. Intensive. Yeah. As a family, That's amazing. Point, should, it should go so well, um, living <laughs> our Yellowstone dreams, you know? Um, and then I, I am actively seeking a preceptor, um, 
and we are kind of opening ourselves to go wherever. Um, and so we would like to stay close to home just because of family if possible, but also we are potentially going to take a preceptorship um, in another state um, if that is what the path that opens up. So our, my school helps um, helps you find a preceptor if you can't um, before you like, like what if it's not lined up once you're done. So I'm taking online classes. I'm on a break right now from having you know baby, but I've been taking online classes for the last year and then I'm going to take in-person classes. And then hopefully by like 2024, mid 2024, 2025, I'll have my licensure. That's the goal. Whoop. I'll be That's cheering for you. I'll be cheering yes, for you. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for sharing you. your heart and your story with us. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on here and uh, just be willing to have the hard conversation. You know, it, it's, it's not an easy one to recognize that midwives need to do some work too, right? Like that we as a community need to, like you said, elevate how we approach yeah. things. Yeah. And uh, acknowledge the shadows so we can yeah. shine some light into them. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.